Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the 11th installment in our Denis Villeneuve movie review series, and actually the fourth installment in our Dune movie review series. We're kind of giving a little bit of a crossover here. This is your co-host Corbin. And I'm Alan. And if you want to check out all of our Denis reviews, those are linked below. All of the Blade, excuse me, all of the Dune reviews are linked down below as well. We do have timestamps down there also and links to our social media pages, our Patreon pages, um, other podcasts we think you would enjoy. And make sure to follow us on Letterboxd because you can check out what we watch every week. And no matter where you're at, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a short written review. It really helps us in the rankings so other people can find Silver Screen Guide. Well, Alan, I gotta say, Dune Part 1, that that kind of caught me by surprise a little bit, actually, when I saw it in the theater, uh, because they were not marketing it as such, has Mm -hmm. been my most anticipated movie of 2021. It was of 2020 until it got pushed, but I gotta say, I've been so excited for this movie but to say yeah this is a big one uh we haven't had anything from dune really in, since dune 2000 um <laughs> and from what i heard from your review it was eh, at best and before that was lynch's dune which was also eh, at best so <laughs> with denivo nov behind this you know this sheds i think a lot more uh hope on a project like Dune, because Dune, as we've noted in uh, the last few um, movies, it's a really uh, big story. A big story that so far, it seems like no one's been able to really capture very well. So when we heard that Denis Villeneuve was coming out and he was doing Dune, um, I think that really put a lot of hope into a lot of people, especially those who are familiar with Dune, a lot of hope into their minds, knowing that Denis Villeneuve is going to take it on. That is very true. Dune has so far, go back and listen to our previous reviews, been considered unfilmable. It has been considered one of those movies that you just can't translate to the big screen. Now, a lot of people said that about The Lord of the Rings. Lo and behold, Peter Jackson did it to immense critical acclaim. And those are considered modern day classics, some of the greatest films of all time with Return of the King, a high fantasy film, ended up winning Best Picture of the Year, something that really just doesn't happen. But you can show, so see how it captured the cultural zeitgeist. And I think a lot of us were thinking, it's been a really long time since we've had that movie that just blows everyone's minds, captures the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody was kind of thinking, what if that's going to be Dune? So that's what we're here to talk about today. And I mean, Frank Herbert put put this novel out in totality in 1965. So it's been getting very close to 60 years at this point since the novel's coming out. People are wondering, is it going to happen? And Denis, this is not his first time adapting 
um, something. He adapted the play into Incendies. He adapted um, the book The Double into Enemy. He adapted the, sh the short story, Story of Your Life, into Arrival. And then he took had his own take on what many consider to be a modern sci-fi classic with Blade Runner. And he handled mm -hmm. that so well that some people were saying it surpassed the original. So I had no fear Dune being in Denis' hands because at this point, it's almost like he can do no wrong, I would say. Right. He's right. just become so good at filmmaking and storytelling. Uh, we were so excited. So Alan, do I, do I even need to ask? Well, first of all, did you stay away from the trailers? I guess that's what I need to ask first. For the most part, I did. Um, I forget what movie I went and saw in the theater, um, but I did see one of these trailers when I was in the theater, but only one of them. And I don't even remember which one it was. Um, but I got to say, I went back and rewatched uh, all the ones that were on IMDb. Um, mm -hmm. I got to say, uh, and maybe this is just my you know post-movie self saying this i don't find these trailers to be anything super great um mostly because i feel like they show just way too much of this movie and they kind of set wrong expectations um don't get me wrong it does make me very excited it made me pretty excited when i watched that trailer for the first time whatever that was but mm -hmm. going back and looking at them in hindsight i'm not the biggest fan of them i don't think that they correctly capture what really is dune of course i would still be in the theater um because denis Nub's name is on it and i will gladly watch anything from him so yeah i will have to agree with you that these trailers when i first saw the the first footage for it the i mean the footage just looked incredible i mean it mm -hmm. just looked so amazing but i'm kind of left scratching my head with the trailer like okay so what what is this i mean if you're not familiar with Dune whatsoever, I could see a lot of people just kind of being like, uh, this, okay, this, this is going to be interesting, I think. I do think they could have done a lot better with these trailers. I don't know who's cutting Denny's trailers, but they need to step up their game or they need to get new a new trailer house to cut this stuff because I think they could make this stuff a lot more exciting, a lot more appealing to mass audiences. They're kind of weird. They're kind of highfalutin trailers in some ways. But nevertheless, of course, I was going to be there, and we were. We were um, there opening weekend. Um, I saw it in the IMAX on a Friday matinee showing with my wife, and there wasn't very many people in the theater at that point because it was like 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, which, I mean, I was kind of grateful for because mm -hmm. I really just – I didn't want distractions, and sometimes you never know. I remember I went to go see the first Hunger Games movie in IMAX. had a terrible experience because people were just ruining it. So, um, Alan, how did, how did you see it? So, I tried to get an IMAX showing. It ended up not working out. Um, me and one of our mutual friends ended up just seeing it in just a standard theater it was, there were a number of people that were there. It wasn't packed or anything, but there were a good number of people that came to see it at like, a, I think it was at like 1.30 in the afternoon on a Friday. I ended up taking that day off of work. Um, but I got to say it was a better experience than what was for Halloween Kills. It didn't have a lady and her, and her two sons with her who were <laughs> talking for most of the movie. Everyone was pretty quiet, which was nice. Yep. Um, that's how I saw it. It's just standard 2D, your standard screen. I would love to see this on IMAX. I might end up going to see it again 
in the iMac showing because this is one that I think definitely benefits with the bigger screen, with the iMac screen. It really does. And parts of the film were shot specifically in mm -hmm. IMAX. The IMAX experience, honestly, is like none other. And I'm not just trying to overhype it. Um, Denis described it in a bonus feature as a love letter to the big screen. So I got to recommend to you, Alan, go back and see this in IMAX because it's one of those experiences you you really probably only get once. Um, I did rewatch it at home four days later on my 65 inch 4k tv it's not the same it's just yeah. not the same experience at all the imax was transportive just powerful experience yeah even in the theater for me um i, I even though I, I saw it in the theater i did also watch it at home and even though i do have a proper surround sound set up with two rear satellites it also still just was not the same um also a 4k panel but it's you know, like I said, it's just not the same as a theater experience. This is definitely one that I would say it's a must see in the theater. If you can get, if you can go see it in the theater, go see it in the theater. But at that point, listeners, I gotta say, if you have not seen Dune in theaters, no matter what we ultimately come down recommending the movie, I'm still recommending the theatrical experience for Dune. It is still one of those things that it's just an incredible theater experience. So if you have not seen Dune, but if for whatever reason you can't make it to theaters, as we said, it is streaming on HBO Max. Definitely go ahead. Um, you got two options, so that is kind of nice. Go ahead and click pause right now if you don't want the film spoiled for you. And then after you've seen the movie, come back here and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. So as with the plots for the previous films, this is a cut and paste job and it is, I'm keeping it very simple. I'm not going to bore you listeners with all the machinations of the plot. I'm going to give you a bird's eye view of what is going on. Yeah. I mean, at least with these Dune movies, while the story might be a little bit complicated, they're all, all these adaptations are all relatively the same. Mm -hmm. So once you write it once, you don't really have to write it again. That's true. Spice is the most coveted item in the galaxy, and it's only found on the planet Arrakis. Whoever controls the spice controls the empire. House Atreides is taking over Arrakis from House Harkonnen. These two hate each other. Duke Leto, leader of the Atreides, played by Oscar Isaac, wants to live in peace, whereas Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, played by Stellan Skarsgård, is plotting subterfuge at the behest of the Emperor. House Atreides has become too popular. The Harkonnens are easier to control. Let them use the Emperor's warriors to take out the Atreides, and it's a win-win. Emperor's warriors, by the way, are the Sardaukar. Once the Harkonnens kill the Duke, Paul, played by Timothy Chalamet, and Jessica, played by Rebecca Ferguson, flee into the desert where they are adopted by the Fremen after Paul proves himself by killing Jamis, played by, sorry if I say your name wrong, Babs Alusun Makun. As part one ends and credits roll. So the first thing that happens in this film, even before the company logos come up, is, we get the quote here, dreams are messages from the deep. Mm -hmm. When I was in the theater, I was like, what on earth? What is that about? Because <laughs> it's not spoken in English. It's in like one of the languages of Dune. Um, yep. What on earth is that about? Of course, Dream sequences or dreams just in general are nothing new um, to any adaptation of Dune, to my understanding. Um, even from the Lynch's version, there was always something to do with visions of the future oh, yeah. that Paul had. 
And I would say mm -hmm. that this element is very played up in Denise Dune, at least in this first part. It's very much played into a lot in this movie. That is true. I would some some people would say nauseatingly so <laughs> it's overdone, but we will hold that off for a little bit. That just grabbed my attention. It's a black screen with a subtitle and it's this really loud noise. Mm -hmm. I should say that the languages in this were created specifically for the film. They used the linguist from Game of Thrones who created the Game of Thrones languages to create the languages for this film. That just caught my attention. Honestly, Alan, I thought we were in Maelstrom and this is oh, the yeah. fish coming back to finish his story. <laughs> yep, that's right. Um, it kind of sounded like the fish and at the same time, it um, Maelstrom opens with title cards as well, talking about dreams. Also, which I found was very interesting. He was kind of tying, in a way, I feel like he's almost tying all of his films together about dreams, how films are, in some ways, our dreams played out on the big screen. Um, fascinating way to pull open the film. But I got to say, and then it opens up actually with Chaney, who is mm -hmm. not much of a character in this, but she does serve as our introduction to just give us a very brief rundown of Spice, the native land, and then the Harkonnens um, kind of ruining everything until one day the Harkonnens just disappear after being on the planet for 80 years. And then we can jump into Paul and everything. So this was necessary. I think this is probably the best way it's going to be done. Far better than what Lynch did with that ridiculous exposition dump. Yeah, and way better than the director's cut from that version oh, of Dune, which over-explained everything and <laughs> talked about the schools that ended up becoming the houses. And, and when, that's not, that's nowhere to be seen here. Uh, all that's we really true. need to know, and I think that this kind of follows through with everything in the story, at least in Villeneuve's telling of the story, is really, it, he only, you know, he exposes the necessary details to us. There are a lot of elements to Dune. There are, I mean, the, the book is, you know, as many, however many thousands of pages long as it is, because it is considered, you know, like the Bible to, to Villeneuve, <laughs> it's considered like the Bible of sci-fi, a lot of people consider it. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of details to it, but I think what this film smartly does is it kind of pulls away anything that isn't like necessary to telling the core story here and just kind of leaves it at the wayside. Um, so when we have this opening narration, it's very much needed narration. And one might even say, is this a vision that Paul is having? Because it goes from this narration to cutting straight to Paul waking up in bed. And we know later on in the story that visions are very much a common element here. So I think this is smart. I think that, you know, it's pretty straightforward. It doesn't last too long. Um, it definitely gives you the much needed information, the relevant information that you need to understand where we are in the story. And that is that Harkonnens have taken over Arrakis for who knows how long to mine spice, which if you mine the spice, you basically control the universe. And the emperor has ruled that they move out of Arrakis and give it to the House of Atreides. Why, we don't know. But that's what we're going to get into in just a few minutes. Yeah, it does set up this mystery. Can we trust the Atreides? What is their game and everything? And then also serves to show Paul, particularly in the first act here, plays a bigger part in the universe or the story of the galaxy of man, whatever you want to say, then he realized this is very much a setup film for Paul. 
Because Paul is supposed to be 15 years old. We need to keep that in mind. He has mm-hmm. really never been portrayed as such. He is supposed to be kind of a smarter than average teenager, but still one that is kind of irrational at times and is very scared of what what all of this means. It's a big change. It's In some ways, it's a coming of age story. So I got to say the casting choices right off the bat are spot on. I think they cast everyone perfectly. And you'll notice that um, Fade Ralpha is missing the character last time played by Sting. Right. I I think he will definitely show up in part two, but this was just another smart thing for Denis to do. Don't there's already a ton of characters in this. Just give us what we need for now, and then we'll have another two and a half mo- hour movie coming soon to do everything else that needs to be done. So um good setup. In a short amount of time, I think this is really just what we need to know. And then we're straight into the movie. Yeah. And you're right. Yeah. Fade Ralpha is nowhere to be seen in this film. Maybe we'll see him next time. I was actually kind of excited to see who he was going to be played by because I didn't take a look at the cast list. Yeah. Other than, of course, whoever I saw in the trailer, which was, you know, Timothy Charlemagne, Zendaya, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was curious to see who Fade Ralpha would be be played by. Maybe we'll have to wait till. A few couple of years from now, but yeah, this is a star-studded cast uh, mm-hmm. as well because, of course, Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya is here, Oscar Isaac, Stellan Skarsgård, Jason Momoa, Josh Brolin, Javier Bardem, just in a few. Of course, Dave Bautista, which I think he's become a regular on Denis films now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of big name actors here, and like you said, rightly cast. I, th- I don't see anybody. Who really stands out here? I mean, of course, I say, oh, that that character is Jason Momoa, but I don't necessarily see only Jason Momoa and or Justin or Oscar Isaac in their roles. They feel like they play their roles very well, so I don't see just the actor because I feel like that's an issue that happens a lot where they just cast people just to cast people. This one, I feel like you know they casted them smartly, so I don't like only see the actor. I see them playing a character. I see the character, not necessarily the actor. I agree. I, I feel the same way. Even sometimes when People have starred together in movies before, and then they star in another movie again. I That's all I can think about. I was not thinking that whatsoever with Javier Bardem and Josh Brolin, who were both in No Country for Old Men together, mm-hmm. and was not thinking whatsoever about them. They really did, you know, just slip into their roles. I mean, I don't think of it as Javier Bardem. I think of him as Stilgar in this. Um, you could tell... Everything in this movie is done with a purpose. Everything they are really giving a hundred percent effort on everything. They are not trying to, you know, with Lynch's film, they really, really gave that a huge effort, but it was just a weird choice to cast Kyle McLaughlin as the lead since he had never been in a movie before. And it just so many choices. This is what Denise 11th film. Mm-hmm. I just feel like David Lynch was just kind of set up to fail from the beginning because of all that stuff. So in some ways, it's not totally fair to to compare them, but it's hard not to also at times. But I I mean, just what a visual feast this movie is as we're getting into it. And what an auditory feast as well. I mean, just you're just immersed into the sounds of this world. And I know my wife afterwards was like, that movie was really loud. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This movie is extremely loud. Um, When I was in the theater, there were the scene when 
let's see, is Jason Momoa, whatever his, the name of his character is, it's Duncan, right. Mm-hmm. The scene when Duncan, um, they escape, everyone escapes from, well, I guess they don't, ex- I guess uh, <laughs> Paul and uh, Lady Jessica don't escape, they were thrown out, but it's when they're hiding away um, in that, I don't know, that area in the desert and more soldiers come after them and it's uh, Duncan who, you know, fights, who gets stabbed and then gets up again mm-hmm. and then fights to his last breath. It's when he got up again yeah. and the music just kind of blares in your face again. That's, <laughs> I think, when it was probably the loudest in the theater. That actually did hurt my ears at that point. I was like, this is way too loud. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, watching it at home wasn't that bad because I can actually control the volume, but this is a very loud movie. But that's not to say that the sound design is bad. I think far from it. The sound design here is absolutely amazing. As far as the sound design goes and the score goes, this is done by Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer, from what I understand, poured his blood, sweat, and tears into creating something we've never heard before. That was his whole Mm -hmm. goal, is for this to sound completely otherworldly. He even created new instruments for this score, which just boggles my mind how he even (laughs) did that. He played instruments in different ways. He was going to just give 110% and with Denny because Hans Zimmer um, was also a fan of the book when he was a kid. And so this is kind of a dream project for a lot of these people that are like now, you know, middle age and they've been working for so long. And they're like, yeah, this was this really is what sparked my imagination when I was a kid. And right. so Hans Zimmer's score, I got to say, it's actually one of my favorite scores from him. It is just so, so different. Yeah. It's definitely one where it almost at times feels it's a part of the movie, like a part of like the sound effects in the movie, because they do. Well, I think what, what was really cool is that and we, this isn't revealed until very late in the film. Some of the sounds they use in the soundtrack are the same sounds that are used for the worms. So they play that into the soundtrack. And when you finally meet a worm late into the film and you hear that sound, it's like, oh, OK. So they it's copying together. They're all in the same plane, it feels like. So I, I absolutely agree. I think that the score here is amazing, especially way out of the ordinary for uh, Hans Zimmer. I know that he gave up working with Christopher Nolan on Tenet to work on this film. Oh, yeah. And I mm-hmm. think that that's very much um, to the better of for what the score ended up being because I would love for Johan, this feels like a Johan Johannesson score at times. And it feels very much like a Denis score um, from what we've seen in previous movies. But I think that this, whereas before a lot of Denis movies and their scores are a lot of droning, especially with like Arrival and a good portion of Sicario, this has got that same element to it where it fits the mood, but it's still listenable outside of the movie, which I think is also a big benefit to me. This is a great score. I'm sure that sound design will get an Oscar and hopefully score also gets an Oscar here too. Oh yeah, I completely agree. I I hope visual effects gets it, editing gets it. I I have a feeling this is going to be huge at the Academy Awards. I mean, I'm going to put it here on the table right now, Alan. I think this movie is, from a technical standpoint, perfect. I'm I'm struggling to find any technical issues wrong with it. Mm -hmm. I think that really the only thing for me is there are a, a few moments where they do use noticeable CGI, but even then it's such a light thing that I don't really count it against the movie. Um, mm-hmm. I think you're, I think that this is by all intents and purposes, some of the best visual effects, at least best utilized visual effects in a film that I've seen this year, at least. 
because this film looks absolutely incredible. Even down to, uh, well, we just mentioned the, the visual effects getting an Oscar. I would, I could absolutely see that. I think that this movie will be getting the Oscar for best visual effects. I can't really even name another movie that came out this year that even comes close, to be completely honest. Uh, this movie looks absolutely incredible in every sense of the word. Even cinematography, which we mentioned in the background, Roger Deakins didn't return, but even then, it still looks amazing. Uh, this is definitely a movie that even if you're not really into the story, I think that the visuals are going to keep your interest. And I think that, you know, it, this for a movie like this, you need those top-notch visuals. Really, you know, only I feel like only certain directors can do a movie like Dune, and Denis Villeneuve is one of them. Uh, I'm glad that, as we noted before, pretty much every single one of his films look amazing, and they feel like they keep getting better with every iteration. This is, of course, no exception to the rule. This looks as good, if not better, than any of his previous films. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. I thought um, Robert Burnett, in his first impressions of it, gave a very interesting take. He said that he felt like Denis went onto a spaceship, flew to these planets, and just picked up his camera and started filming just this stuff. And I, I got to agree with that. It really mm -hmm. does feel like, for the first time... I, I'm struggling to think of really any other science fiction movie that just feels like I'm into the world in a way like never before. I mean, I felt that way a little bit with Rogue One, but just the scope, just the massive scope, what would it feel like to be standing in front of a gigantic spaceship or to when they first walk out onto the landing field in Arrakis? It just feels like so expansive and real. Even when Paul is walking around the grounds at Arakeen, I mean, my jaw is just dropping sometimes where I'm just like, it really looks like he's just walking around at that place. And of course, that just makes me so happy. That's just such a feast for my imagination is really in the for the first time in maybe a long, long time, if, if not at all, I feel completely transported in this movie to a new place. I mean, I just get so sucked in to this. I mean, there was even one point in my IMAX screening when you see these giant cargo ships lifting up out of the waters of Caladan. I mm -hmm. actually had to kind of grab onto my seat for a minute because I felt like I was just going to fall into the ocean if it was just such an immersive shot. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. And even, you know, even though you got a seat on IMAX, which is a lot more of an immersive immersive experience, I definitely got some of that feeling in the theater. Mm -hmm. um, which is why I want to see it in the IMAX again, because you're right, this just kind of sucks you in. If if you're even close to a fan of sci-fi, even if you're not, you know, this I feel is a film that just kind of sucked me in um, and really brought me along for a ride. I haven't really been in a movie that I feel like, of course we have a lot of, you know, the Star Warses or the Marvels, which not aren't exactly bad in their own right, but I never really get taken away by them. Even with e e every single iteration of Star Wars, I think has been, you know, decent, uh, as an overall sense, but Nez never sucked me away into a completely different world. And this one, I say, I would think, this one I think is probably the best uh, example I can give of a film that I wasn't really on planet Earth anymore. I was, I was on the planet Arrakis. I was walking around, mm -hmm. and I think that you know the theatrical experience is what makes this film as impactful because it's very much a film that is meant to be seen on the biggest screen possible, which is what Denis was going for. And with that, with the right setting, I think that you can very much be taken away by it. It definitely is a film 
that looks amazing and ha and utilizes you know everything to its power to make it as transportive as possible. One last thing about the score, I did you pick up on this, Alan? They repurposed a little bit of the original score they from did. David Lynch's Dune. Um, I did. clocked it at the two hour and seven minute mark. I just got this big smile on my face when I heard it. That was so cool. Yep, I think it. Was, I think there were a couple of times where I definitely heard it. But you're right. At one point, they do use electric guitar. Um, there are some motifs pretty light i think you already mentioned the timestamp but they do they do bring up uh the original tune that toto made back in that original dune they bring that up as well you're right yeah they do incorporate some of the original score of dune into this new one i thought that was pretty cool too also some of the world building is really incredible um for instance the usage of the sign language that is not something I believe is in the book. It hasn't been in any other iteration um, outside of the spoken languages. That I thought was very fascinating. That just mm -hmm. shows that there's this extra layer of mistrust in this world that they can't even have people hearing or if people are hearing, then they have to use a different language. And it just involves me in the story so much more to see this and um, I was also really happy to see that they retained the insect designs going all the way back to Jordorowski's Dune, where Jordorowski had the idea to make the ships look insect-like. And I think um, Lynch kind of tried it, but Denis really nailed it here with these ornithopters that look like dragonflies. It's such yeah. a cool design. Yeah. And since we're kind of on the topic of language um, and stuff, what did you think about the utilization of the voice? Because I know we noted in uh, in Lynch's Dune that the voice kind of stood out to both of us as being one of the elements that really was surprising and also at the same time done really, really well. What do you think of its utilization here? Because I think it was done also, again, really, really well and definitely benefits from having a surround sound setup um, like with that Lynch's Dune we reviewed a few weeks ago. While I think it is done well, I'm going to make maybe a controversial statement. I think Lynch's, how Lynch sound mixed the voice and used the voice, I think he actually did it better. It was um, a little different. I, I feel like he kind of set the template for what the voice is going to sound like because in some ways they are very similar, but I do think there is something about the voice in Lynch's version that captures my imagination a little bit more than just this one. I felt like they, I felt like they could have been a little bit more creative with how it sounded. I still think it's great, but that's that's mm. actually one of my um, disappointments. Is it doesn't sound a little uh, more creative. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, what did you think of the shield effects? Um, because the shield effects were really, really bad in Lynch's version because they basically didn't have a computer back then. But yeah. the shield was really cool. I thought that added a new layer of um, dimension I've never quite seen before during the fighting where it would start to turn red or when they would drop bombs and the bombs were like really trying to pierce through the shield and then the explosion was contained in the shield. A very cool idea. I yeah. uh, it's, it's from the book, but it's cool to see it actually brought to life properly. Yeah, I think that uh, when it's on just like the normal characters, you don't really get to see it worked like it does in the ships right because with the ships like you mentioned if they blow up the ship well first it blows up inside the shield then the shield breaks and then it explodes outside of that i think that looks really really cool but it's miles better than lynch's iteration which really couldn't i couldn't tell what was going on when they had the shields on in that movie and during the, the opening trading sequence um 
I think that they do utilize it much better here. It makes a lot more sense how it's how it works in this version of Dune. One of the other things that I really felt the power of that was a huge disappointment in Lynch's version, and they kind of captured it a little bit in the sci-fi version, but the worms, the worms need mm. to be this really powerful presence that make an impact, especially audiences that have not seen this before. It needs to be shocking. And when you just see the sand just burst beneath the power of these worms and blow up, and he's really like keeping them obscured, but it's just so dang serious. And the sand just like starts to vibrate in this weird way and things start to sink and the worms are like lifting up things that weigh like a million pounds. When the worms would come, um, and especially, um, I like how he just kept them like subterranean, like it was just like this cavern, their mouth would just suck everything into until yeah. towards the end when they have their last encounter with the worm and it's like almost like dawn or nightfall or something. And that's when, that's when the IMAX comes into full effect and you just see Paul running and the worms coming behind him. Oh, that, that was always very much edge of your seat for me. Oh, yeah. No, I think that this handles the worms almost as best as they could be because they, then he goes for a, wants to make them very mysterious. And like you mentioned, when we first encounter the worms, you get to see how really big they are because in, in Lynch's Dune, um, they, of course, all looked like puppets, um, <laughs> which, yeah, Ugh, it was bad. you know, is definitely aged from from then, but I feel like the scale of the worms is captured way better in this version because when you see the mouth open up and the sand just kind of fall into this big hole and you see, oh, that's a mouth to a worm, <laughs> you get to see how truly large they are. They're, these things are massive. And I think that the tr this is where the trailer, I feel, kind of does this a disservice because you do get to see, and, and I think, all the ones that I saw, you get to see the shot of the worm out of the sand looking down at Paul that happens yeah. at the very end of the movie. And that's where you get to see how big they are compared to a human, not necessarily compared to a machine. So I think that, yeah, the worms, and th this kind of filters into um, a lot of elements, they smartly hold them back. There are a lot of things that this movie doesn't explain or doesn't show us. And I think that with the worms, uh, they smartly hold off really showing them off until late in the movie. And then when you see the worms at the very end of the story, like the very last minutes of the film, you get to see somebody riding on one of the worms. Mm -hmm. And of course that will happen next movie. But uh, I got to say, I think that the the way that they handled the worms in this film was done very, very well because it, it leaves a lot of mystery behind them while at the same time not explaining too much. I really appreciated that there was still something to take me by surprise with this because at this point I am so steeped in Dune lore. I've watched all mm -hmm. the iterations and I've read the book. I'm just like nothing new is going to quite catch me off guard. And I know all these references where my wife is like, what's a Harukin? And I was like, oh, you, you mean the Harkonnens? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> so... I was wondering what they could still take me by surprise. And they really did with the visuals, with the worm. But one of the things that I was actually kind of confused about that I was discussing with my wife at the end, it was only upon my second watching that I understood what this is, is Paul is seeing visions of potential futures. He's not just seeing visions of one future, but that leads me to a very interesting concept here because Paul is hearing these voices in his head. He's seeing these visions 
and they don't quite go the way he thinks they will because he thinks Jamis will be his friend and he Jamis mm-hmm. will show him the way. In fact, he has to kill Jamis. That's the surprise actually for me is I knew I I was like I know he kills Jamis, but which was actually something cut out of Lynch's version. I believe it was thrown into the extended cut. Um, this is actually a big deal, so I'm glad they incorporated it. And this is probably a smart place to end the movie because our hero has to kill someone seemingly in cold blood. And it's just right. like weird place. It's like, what if Frodo has to like stab Aragorn or something at the end of the movie? And you're like, what? and that's how it ends. <laughs> and you're like, right. what? Um, and it was um, on my second viewing Jamis said, my thumper is what saved them from the worm, not them just running away. And then Paul has to turn around and kill Jamis. Um, This surprised me that Paul is seeing visions he's not sure whether will be true or not. Right, right. And we also see uh, kind of mixed in with all of this, you know, between him having visions of uh, him, you know, befriending him and I'm going to show you the way versus where he's being killed by the same person, either by him or we also see flashes of uh, Zendaya with blood in her hand and blood on the knife. You know, is is it the knife that killed him? It, there's a lot of mystery between, uh, among, you know, what these visions represent. And so you're right, you know, we need to see that Paul is having visions of potential futures here. And it's kind of hard to see or to know which is really the true future that we that, that ends up happening. Um, but some one of these or a combination of them is going to be what happens. So, yeah, it is kind of surprising that, you know, Paul, as far as we know, hasn't really killed anybody up until this point. Um, and this would be the first time that he does it to j- gain the respect of uh, the Fremen and and stuff. So, yeah, this is kind of a big moment. Uh, it's also when we finally get to see Zendaya like actually in the story because she is in a lot of the flashbacks and is in a lot of the marketing material, but really isn't in the story a whole lot. Into the very end of this, and to the very end of the movie, um, but yeah, this is a surprising moment where it's kind of muddy. We don't really know what's going to happen in this fight. Is he really going to die, or is he going to, you know, or something different going to happen? Yeah, I, I was curious about that as well. So glad they were able to catch me off guard since I read the book and I know what happens. But they were approaching this in a little different way, and of course, some of these, some of the trailers, you know, subverted my expectations. Because you see Paul in his armor, like fighting, and I'm like, how in the world are they going to get to that part? Because this is supposed to be the first half, and that's not like way later into until the second half of the book. Come to find out, it's all just a vision um, with some of this stuff. So that's curious to see where they'll go once we get part two in a couple years. Yeah, the one major thing I think this movie suffers from, the story suffers from is maybe not setting up much of a quest or a purpose to begin with, at least one that is very, I would say, grounded. The main thing is that the Atreides are taking over Arrakis, and this is a really big deal, and everybody hates them, and they might get killed over it, which is what ends up happening. Okay, that's kind of a tense thing, but... Once that happens, Paul just goes into the desert, and we're really not sure where this is going to take him. I'm thinking back to other epics, just to go off Lord of the Rings, for instance, since a lot of people are comparing this with that movie. 
Frodo is put on a quest to destroy the One Ring, and then he develops friends along the way that will help him. Some of them live, some of them die. That is a very clear-cut quest. This movie, I mean, this, don't get me wrong, this is pretty much a straight adaption of the first half of the book. This is just a problem I also think with the book in general is, it's kind of interesting, Paul is going to become this, you know, messiah of the world but it's going to be a very bloody messiah ship not like the jesus kind but more of the put to the sword kind i'm just thinking if i don't know the story which i already do but if i'm if i don't know the story i'm kind of just going to be left throughout this whole movie kind of like what's the point what's our quest here what's our goal yeah yeah i mean for me since i have the pre-knowledge at least my only exposure to the story of Dune is that of Lynch's version, which is not the best adaptation of the story from my understanding. Um, for me, knowing what the story is and knowing where it goes, I wasn't necessarily like, confused as to you know what the point of the story is because I know that you know this is a quest to for is a quest for Paul to become basically the messiah to the Fremen and to be the one who controls Arrakis and becomes basically the most powerful person in the universe, right? That's more or less what his goal is. So knowing that going into the story, I kind of know that these are the same events that happened in, in uh, Delinch's Dune. And this is the same, relatively the same story that I saw there. It's going to be played out in a pretty much the same fashion for the most part. So I wasn't necessarily confused or wondering what is the, you know, what's the goal here in the story, because I know where it's going to go. But I think that that's a valid point, you know, for somebody who maybe hasn't seen Dune, um, or doesn't know the story of Dune, you know, what are they going to think? What are, what's the story for them? I think this is very much a story because it's split in half, right? It's very much a story about the downfall of, of a family, right? Because we get to see from the very beginning, the Atreides are a little bit different from the Harkonnens, um, and really those, there are only exposure. And so when we get to see them go to Arrakis, we know that the spice is, you know, if you control the spice, you control the universe. And then the, the, the Harkonnens come. We know that this is not a good thing. And of course, the Atreides are pretty much wiped out at the end of the story. So I think what it is, is this first half is the downfall of this family. And then of course, knowing the story of Dune, the next movie is going to be the rise of what remains of the family. So I think that that's kind of what ends up being the story is we get to see the fall of the Atreides house. And you're right. That that is what it's about. And I I was curious kind of what your take on this would be, but I mean I know you've already seen the David Lynch version. I know some people, even those that are fans of it are complaining that there's really not much lightheartedness to be had here it's pretty serious from beginning to end whereas something like the lord of the rings at least the fellowship of the ring does have some more lighthearted comedic moments this really doesn't have that this is very weighty very heavy science fiction i would say i would say that's not really mm -hmm. a problem for me because this is telling this isn't the kind of happy-go-lucky luke skywalker type of story where you know, he's going to bring balance to the force. This is like, right. oh, crap. I might bring balance to the universe, but it's I'm going to have to slaughter like a, 
you know, it's going to be genocide. It's going to be jihad. That's something like I don't think we really have quite seen before. Um, so for me, that really wasn't a problem that this is a heavy science fiction movie. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely with you. Uh, this, I kind of feel, it, I, I had a feeling that it was probably going to end up being this way. I felt like the tone was probably going to be pretty serious because every other DNA film is. Um, so that wasn't a surprise to me, but I, I think I'm with it. I think that it also works because, you know, if it's the story about the downfall of this family or the downfall of this house, it makes sense that the, you know, the tone is going to be set to be a bit more serious. Um, because if you're comparing it to, De, to Lynch's Dune, that's not quite as serious as this. Um, so I think that the tone very much works for this story because again, it's about the downfall, not necessarily about, you know, a rise of a, of like the one like Star Wars is that's next movie. Uh, well, maybe next we will, if it retains the same tone, I wonder what, you know, what justification is going to have for keeping it. Uh, we'll see. I mean, we can't judge it now, but I'm curious to know what, you know, what it's going to be like come next, come in a few years from now. One other thing too for me, um, and I, I kind of brought this up, but I do kind of want to explore it a bit further, is what this movie doesn't explore. One big example is the Emperor. We don't for, we don't see the Emperor like on screen at all in this film. We see a guy who brings a message from the Emperor, and that's about as far as it goes. Um, whereas in Lynch's Dune, it opened with the Emperor um, giving or it, being visited by somebody else, um, and then he makes the, the decree to swap out from the Harkonnens to the Atreides on Arrakis. I think that is really interesting because we hear a lot about the Emperor in this film, but we never see him. Uh, I'm sure that they'll show it next time. But that's just one example. Another thing too, of course, we already, met, we already brought it up. The worms, we don't really ever see the worms until the very end of the story. We see like the mouth of the worms and we see the giant like uh, the giant dunes of sand that are being blown apart by them. Um, but we don't ever really get to see them until the very end of the story. I think that it's smartly done because it builds mystery onto... You know, what are these elements of the story that we're not being shown, we're only being told about? I think that that is a very smart way of building intrigue and making it not as weighed down by all of the, you know, plot points and elements and lore to what is doomed. Because I think that that's kind of where uh, Lynch kind of fell short is he followed, um, he very much focused on the lore and that kind of over explained a lot of things and made it hard to follow. Yeah, Lynch got way too bogged down in the details and the machinations in essentially trying to put the original Star Wars trilogy into one two plus hour movie. Yeah, I agree. This is very smart. Denny is not blowing his wad all within the first movie, because if you go back to the original Star Wars, we did get Darth Vader. So we get the what? Is, Baron, you know, Harkonnen here, and we get a little bit of Raban, but it wasn't until the Empire Strikes Back that we got the Emperor, that we got characters mm -hmm. like Yoda, that we really kind of dug into some things, and everybody considers Empire, well, okay, I, I, excuse me, listeners, let me rephrase that. Some people consider Empire to be, you know, the best Star Wars film or better than the first one. I know some people think that the original Star Wars is the best one. That's honestly what I'm guessing is going to happen here is that we're going to get Dune part two and it really is going to open up the scope even more. It's going to be even more epic. We are going to get the Emperor. We are going to get more of the worms. It's going to be more of the battle movie, more action stuff. And that's actually what Denis said because 
everybody right now is just asking him, what's Dune Part 2? We just want it right now. He described Dune Part 1 as the appetizer, just the appetizer. And he says Dune Part 2 is just going to be just a pure cinema lover's dream. It's going to be just pure cinematic bliss. It's going to be no holds. Nothing will be held back. It's So, I don't know. That's really getting my hopes up. But just to compare, this really does have to be the appetizer. Because if you serve somebody the main dish with Dune, audiences aren't just going to click with it. It's just too much. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that <clears throat> this is... This is very much not an action film. This is very much a drama with action elements to it because mm -hmm. there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of, you know, elements about, you know, is Paul Rudd the one and, you know, who they're training him to be. Um, there's a lot of that in this film. There's not a whole lot of action until I'd say probably about halfway into the story. Uh, once, and that's when the Harkonnens attack and the, the Atreides fall. That's when the action finally gets started in, there's some decent, there's a lot of decent action, action scenes or decently long action scenes from there until the end that happened a few times. But if I were to explain this movie as a genre, I would say it's very much a drama with action elements, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That's exactly what it is. My last somewhat complaint, I guess you could say, with this movie is the third act. The third act feels somewhat meandering to me in such a way that I could tell, you know, my wife was getting a little restless and the guy sitting next to me in the theater was, you know, shifting in his seat. And even I was just kind of like, once Paul and Jessica just start wandering in the desert after they escape out of the sandstorm, they really are, are just wandering around. And I think this could be... Denis struggling with how do I bring this movie to some kind of a close, but transition and get get it to where I need it to be to set it up properly for Dune Part 2. It's a hard place to find the stopping point. I don't think it's a particularly exciting or, you know, yeah, particularly exciting one. But this last almost third of the movie is just kind of like almost the intermission in some ways between part one and part two, where it's just kind of like, we, we I know where we need to go, but it's a, getting a little tedious to get there. I, I don't know if you felt that way or, or not. Yeah, when I, when I was watching in the theater, I, I definitely felt that. I felt like once after the um, the Harkonnens attack and take down Atreides, um, and then things just kind of keep going, um, I started to feel it towards the end. I was like, all right. You know, the time, the length of this movie is starting to get to me. When I watched it for the second time, I didn't feel it nearly as much. Um, I felt like I was more into it the second time. And so I, I really, I'm really excited to go watch it again in the IMAX to get that IMAX experience to see if that same thing happens again. Uh, so at least for me, I don't, I, I, at least for me, I know what you're talking about because I felt the same thing. This is a long film. This is a long film that isn't full of action. Um, so... It's definitely one that has a lot of lore to it still, even though most of it is, I feel, explained better than we have in previous movies. We'll see if I still retain the same opinion watching it for a third time, but I do know what you're talking about. I have felt the same thing. It is long in the tooth. Mm -mm. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one more thing comparing this to uh, Lynch's Dune. Mm -hmm. Um 
of course, it's pretty much no surprise at this point that we both think that Lynch Lynch's this is a much better telling of the story than what Lynch's Dune was like. Uh, it is not as confusing. It is you know everything's kind of spread out. It makes a lot more sense to me. Um, I was not I was not confused at all in the story, and part of that was because I already have some of the prior knowledge from from Lynch's Dune. But I'm glad to see that you know while this is a story that doesn't explain everything away. You know, it does leave a lot for the audience to chew on. It leaves, as we mentioned, there's a number of things that aren't explained, like the emperor or the worm. The worms aren't shown as much. There are little elements that are there that, of course, build for a sequel, but at the same time, leave enough for the audience to kind of figure it out for themselves or uh, leave enough that, you know, enough intrigue there that makes it interesting. I think that was kind of the problem with Lynch's Dune. We kind of talked about this a second ago, where Lynch's Dune kind of explained everything to a point where it was just kind of annoying to try and trudge through. I don't feel that with this story. Um, I know our mutual friend also felt like this was kind of a movie that felt like it's very much only set up for it. I would like to talk to others who... Um, I would like to talk to others who have seen it who don't know, who don't have any prior knowledge of the story and see what their opinion is on it. But I think that for the most part, this is the best, the better telling of any other version of Dune that I've seen, which is Lynch's Dune only. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know what you think, Corbin. And maybe we can lead that into our final thoughts. Um, but since you are well versed into the story, uh, I'm wondering, I'm curious to know if you think that this is the best version, best telling of the story that you've seen. It is the best adaption yet and probably ever will be i don't see how this could be topped um yeah absolutely denny is actually able to bring the mythology and character motivations into the story and into i would say a proper runtime whereas the lynch version chopped up so many characters and so many motivations we had no idea why why they were even in the movie at least as you know lynch's final cut Who's to say what his full original vision would have been like, but in the cut that we saw, you're right, there is so much here, so much that is just missing, whereas I will have to definitely agree, this is the best adaption yet, but he even smartly leaves some things out, because originally um, there is like a really big banquet scene that wasn't in this, that really would have killed the pacing of the film. Also, um, Thufir Howitt actually suspects Jessica to be the traitor in the Atreides house. Um, Nobody is suspecting Dr. Yui. Um, It's Jessica, they believe, is the traitor. That plot point was left out, but I think that's smart because, once again, you don't want to get lost in the weeds, which is very easy for this. Um, Just the fact he was able to adapt what he did is just honestly shocking because it's very hard but there is still plenty to chew on with this movie of what will come especially when we now know these visions to be unreliable um i also really like when paul says that people are believing what they've been told to believe um mm-hmm. which is a very interesting thing because in lynch it was just 100% obvious that um, Paul was the Messiah. Whereas this, it's like, what if I'm just kind of a made up Messiah? Um, which is where the book ultimately lands, at least, um, for the first installment is 
maybe he is like kind of a savior to them, but not the actual savior of the universe or anything like that. Um, and I even think that um, for those of us who know what to look for, I think they, they are even setting up some characters we haven't seen yet. When Paul says, well, the emperor, the emperor still has daughters that aren't married yet. You know, what if I could make a play for the throne? And when the Reverend Mother says, we have other prospects outside of Paul that could, you know, take his place. I'm thinking of Fade Rautha. I think we're going to get a major focus on him. He's going to be set up as his arch nemesis in the next one. So this is the best adaption, and this one does still leave enough to chew on for audiences that it doesn't just Lynch just explained things and dialogue in such a terrible way, whereas this is done yeah. so much more eloquently. But that does lead me into my question, Alan. I'm I'm very curious what your ultimate ultimately will land on this. What is your rating and recommendation for Dune Part One? Even though I'm not, you know, I I tend not to lean on high, high budget uh, Hollywood pictures. Not to say not to say that they're anything bad, but. I tend to gravitate, gravitate away from them. This is a breath of fresh air. This is one that I'm glad that Denis was the one who did this for uh, you know a story like Dune being my only exposure from the David Lynch Dune. Um, I'm glad to see that this story that he's told here is not as muddy as what was there before. I think that this is very much a setup film. And I'm glad I'm waiting to see what's going to happen with Dune Part Two. In fact, I, mean, I think I'm even more excited for Dune Part Two than I was for this one, um, because now I feel like I have I understand the story a lot more now. Um, I cannot wait to go back and watch this for a third time. I, I've seen it twice. I want to see it again, and I want to see it in IMAX. Um, this is a film that I'm happy to say is definitely probably one of my favorites of the year so far. We'll see. Of course, there's the year we still have another month and so or so of the year left um, and Oscar season is very much about to be in full swing if it isn't already, but I'm very happy with the outcome of Dune. Uh, we'll see what happens next time uh, when Dune part two comes out. When I first rated this, I thought it was pretty good. Walking out of the theater, I gave it a seven. Um, I knew that I had to think about it a lot more than what I did walking out of the theater. I thought that it was seven club, pretty close to an eight. When I watched it for a second time, I gave it an eight. Um, and after talking about it some more, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to land on a nine. So, of course, it's a high recommend for me. Um, I, I, can't, I myself cannot wait to go back and watch it for a third time. When I saw Dune in the IMAX for the first time, my jaw dropped. I truly was witnessing something I have never seen before. There was one point when I saw them coming out of hyperspace or whatever in, their, in his Denny way, where I literally said, holy cow just because the visuals was just so incredible of the scope of everything. Yes, there have been other transportive fantasy films, but nothing quite like this. My senses were overwhelmed from Hans Zimmer's otherworldly score to the in-your-face sound mixing to ultimately the truly gorgeous visuals. Once I heard Denis was adapting Dune, I thought, I'll believe it when I see it. Many believed it to be impossible. I'm thrilled to say Denis has done it. Dune is a masterpiece of filmmaking and storytelling. It really is the Fellowship of the Ring or Star Wars of our generation. 
I'm fully expecting Dune Part 2 to be The Empire Strikes Back, even better than the original. Denis has described this as just the appetizer. I told my wife I could have sat there for another two and a half hours. Bring on the main course, Denis. Dune Part 1 receives 9 stars out of 10 with my highest recommendation. So, pretty high scores. I'm wary to say that this is a masterpiece. Uh, for me, a masterpiece is one that is just as amazing and great as it was the day that it came out to, say, 10, 20 years from that day. Uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. I, I can't call it a masterpiece yet. Uh, we'll see come a number of years from now if it still is as relevant and holds the same amount of pleasure as it does when it came out in 2021. I got to know, though, Alan, where are you going to rank this? Because so far, as far as I can tell, you have only given out 110 to a Denis film, that being Blade Runner 2049, way back in the day. I believe that's accurate. Yeah, I think I gave it a 10. It was either a 9 or a 10. Um, so you did hand out a 9 to Sicario and a 9 to Incendies. So kind of got a tie going on here. Where are you yeah. placing this? Ooh, that's a hard that's a hard question. I my gut says Incendies first and then Dune um and then Sicario. That's what my gut says. Where are you putting Blade Runner then? Oh crap. <laughs> I got All right, I got a factor Blade Runner into this. Uh Did I really give it a 9? I thought I gave it a 10. Maybe I did give it a 10. Says here I gave it a 10. I Okay, I'm curious if that would change though because I did go back before this review and I watched Blade Runner 2049 again, which I've seen it many, many times. I originally did have it down as a 10. For this viewing at least, this could change, but for this viewing at least, I did drop it down to a 9. So mm -hmm. for my personal rankings, I have Incendies at number 1, 10 out of 10. Enemy... Number two, 10 out of 10. Dune at number three. Blade Runner um, number four with Sicario at number five. I'm going to say that Blade Runner is still going to be number number one. And the reason why I say that is because it does dive. Oh, this movie, Dune doesn't really dive too much into this, but it Blade Runner 2049. Blade Runner 2049 definitely has a lot of philosophical elements to it. Um, philosophical and existential elements to it that I think intrigue me more than Dune's than Dune stuff does. So I'm going to say Blade Runner is still top king right now, but of course Dune is not too far behind it. Do I even need to ask if you're going to pick this one up on Blu-ray? It'll be on 4K. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'll be picking <laughs> it up. I'll be getting it on 4K, even though I don't have a 4K player yet. <laughs> It'll be future-proofing myself. Yeah, I can't wait. To pick up the 4K as well. Uh, what other film or TV recommendations do you have for our listeners to check out after they see Dune? I've got two. I know last time I recommended Mad Max, any of them, and I kind of shot myself in the foot with that one because <laughs> this would have been a perfect opportunity to recommend uh, at least Fury Road. Um, I'm going to say Tenet. This was supposed to come out like around the same time as Tenet, and it totally didn't. Um, it was moved back a year and Tenant kind of was moved back, but still came out. Um, I'm also going to recommend the OG Star Wars. I, I, I know that we've talked about it a couple of times already on the podcast and people are kind of, you know, comparing it to Star Wars. 
Um, but I think with the OG Star Wars, there, of course, it takes a lot of elements from this, but there are a lot of elements that are pretty similar between the two of them. But Dune, of course, is a much different story. So that's what I'm going to recommend. I am going to be recommending, of course, Blade Runner once again. I think that offers a very similar visual design. I think he has perfected it here, honestly. Um, I'm also going to be recommending you check out or at least look into this movie. I've yet to watch it. I've been meaning to watch it for a while. It is called The King, starring Timothy Chalamet. It is an epic medieval style movie based on a true story. Kind of wondering if that uh, was kind of the precursor to this for Chalamet's acting chops, at least. I've yet to see it, but I've, I've wanted to. It looks really good. Yeah, I remember seeing this. I haven't seen it either. Well, we do have to wait a little bit, unfortunately, to see Dune Part 2. Now, by the time you're hearing this, Dune Part 2 has been greenlit. Before that, it had not been greenlit. It was a up-in-the-air thing, whether we were even going to get to see the continuation of this mm. or not. So currently, we do have to wait one year, 11 months, and 19 days um, to see Dune Part 2. It was greenlit. Um, if all holds true, it will debut October 20th, 2023. That's really not too bad of a time between sequels, I would say. Um some that's usually about average um some sequels are ridiculous and they make you wait like four years something crazy like that um but or, in the or mean 30 in the case of blade runner yeah that's true in the case of blade runner 30 in the case of mary poppins you had to wait like a solid like 50 years or so, yeah. <laughs> something like that but this is not the uh we do actually get to see dune the sisterhood coming to HBO Max, where Denis will direct at least the first series. It will focus on the Bene Gesserit and take place um, before the first movie. Um, and I know the writer of this movie was um, doing, was helming the series, but he had to step down to really put his attention all onto this. Um, I'm very curious. I will say I'm pretty skeptical about what that TV series will be like, but I'm definitely going to be checking it out once it hits HBO Max. I might check it out. I'm not usually one that watches TV series, mostly because I just don't have the time. Um, I'm curious to look into it, though. If it, if Denis going to have his hand in it, I'm curious about it. Denis does have other things in the works. Um, currently in production is a movie called The Sun, starring Jake Gyllenhaal once again teaming up. Um, you can check that one out. That's actually going to be a TV miniseries. Um, completely okay. directed by Denny based off of the novel. Um, he also is currently in production on Cleopatra, which I'm sure will be a huge epic. I think uh, yes. that one was probably his backup in case for some reason Dune flopped and he didn't get to do part two. My guess is he was going to probably move on to Cleopatra, which really did worry me because Cleopatra, um, Originally was supposed to come out in 2023. There's no release date for it now, as far as I can tell. Um, so, yeah, his next project is definitely Dune Part 2. Thankfully, we are going to get to see that. If all holds well with Dune Part 2, we will be seeing... Uh, maybe they're going to call it Dune Messiah. It will be the third Dune movie to wrap up Denise Dune Trilogy, which I really hope happens. That'd be awesome. If we can get a trilogy, that'd be cool. Well, listeners, the question after the show is, is Dune the next epic of our time? 
As of right now, I'm definitely going to say yes. If all holds true, I think we've got the next epic on our hands for people to look forward to. It's been a while. I mean, as far as series that have taken the world by storm, there was Star Wars that kind of really the cart collapsed ultimately with the sequel trilogy, unfortunately. But the Harry Potter movies, even to some lesser extent, Hunger Games, Twilight, Lord of the Rings, we really just haven't had that next big series. We've been waiting for quite a while, I would say. So I think Dune's it. I'm hoping. We'll see. Yeah, I think I think it I think time will tell. I think it's too early to say now because this movie's only been out for like a week. Um yeah. it's it's time will tell how audiences react to it. If audiences love it that much and it is a classic of the times and is our the next big epic, it'll be something that, you know, time kind of trans it kind of transcends time where it's relevant for uh every generation. So I think that only time will tell you know, where this is going to stand with audiences. Well, Alan, thank you for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, thank you for joining us. Make sure to share with your friends and family. And if you haven't clicked subscribe yet, go ahead and do that right now because we are not done with sci-fi quite yet. Next week, I'm going to be jumping into the grid with Tron, a dearly beloved science fiction movie to my heart ever since I was a kid. I'm very excited to give my review of that one and explore that one. So you're not going to want to miss that review. And we're curious to know what you think, listeners of Dune. So make sure to send us your thoughts, email us, tweet us. You can email us at silverscreenguide95 at gmail.com. That is in the description below. Curious, but we will definitely see you back here in two years, listeners, for Dune Part 2. But we will see you next week with Tron. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.
Absolutely. And at that point, listeners, if you haven't seen Dune yet, I, I got to say, no matter what we recommend, oh, I think someone's breaking into Alan's apartment. <laughs> someone's outside smashing something, I think. They've got garbage cans on the other side that are for businesses, and they sometimes go out there and break stuff <laughs> so they can get it into the gar- into the dumpster. Oh. Yeah, it's so windy, it just blew our, um, that lid off our garbage. Um, oh. Our, our dumpster thing was really loud just a little bit ago. 